0: I know, of course, the answer to this as I ask it, but it's worth thinking about, (coughs) and it's where we're headed today. (laughs) You ever had someone who abused their authority for their own gain instead of using it what it's for? You ever had somebody who abused their authority instead of using it for what it's meant to be used for, which is to help, (laughs) to help others, to protect Keep safe. Maybe it was a boss, a co-worker, a coach, a teacher, a pastor. Maybe it was a friend, maybe it was a neighbor, maybe it was an extended family member, maybe, and usually most hurtful, maybe it was a close, trusted friend. When somebody abuses their power and and authority for their own gain, instead of using it what it's for, to help protect and to, to keep safe and to create an environment where people can, can become who God made them to be. When somebody abuses their power and their authority, it's extremely painful. And honestly, many never really recover well from that. We've got loads of adults in this world. The world is full of people reeling from the consequences of abuse of power and authority that they have experienced personally. And I know that's true for your life. In a whole myriad of ways. And as soon as I ask a question like that, inside many of us are instant emotions. Yeah yeah, I've had I've had someone abuse their power and authority for their gain when they were meant to protect. I have an incident in high school, I'm not going to really talk about any details at all, but when I was in high school, we experienced as a family some real family heartbreak uh, that has, to this very day, been a real formative uh, experience for me personally. Um, I'm not going to give any details, but, but looking back, I think that whether my emotions about the, the, the facts of the matter were, were right about what actually happened or they're not, um, I think what I felt at the time was, was a grief about the fact that my own family hadn't been protected by some who were supposed to protect them. Have you ever had somebody who abused their authority for their gain instead of for protecting you? Yeah, of course you have. Sure you have. And and, and that that gain of self for those who are in power and who have the authority and who are in most control. That gain for them doesn't have to be monetary. It doesn't have to be material. It can be the kind of gain that sort of protects them at the cost of others in a whole host of ways, the kind of gain that keeps them intact, You know, the person in authority, a kind of relative security for them, for self, instead of using that to help those in need. And here's here's something that's hard in all this. Here's something that's hard about life. We sort of go through life expecting it to be fundamentally different than that. Meaning, we all expect that that should never happen. <laughs> which, which someday will be the case. But in a sinful and a broken and a messed up world like we live in, the truth of the matter is that with any and every person who has ever lived who had any measurable amount of power or control or authority and listen all of us do <laughs> with any and every person who has had any authority or power at all the way they use that will never perfectly protect those under their care it can't it doesn't matter how how wonderful the person in authority may be it doesn't matter how much integrity he or she has or how much or how little actual power or authority is wielded by them. With any and every person who has ever lived, their use of authority will never perfectly protect. It's not possible because, because we're broken and, and, and we experience sin and the world doesn't work right. And so we grow up with this expectation that it's supposed to be different. And and, and what I've said is true. (laughs) Any and every person who wields any power or control or authority at all cannot, no matter how much integrity the person has, wield that power perfectly except for one person. (laughs) Except for one. And what we'll see in the text today is that Jesus, as the one exception, creates by his power and his authority and his control a place where you can, despite what you think and feel in the moment, can always be perfectly protected. Because you see, Jesus is a shepherd who loves his own. Jesus is a shepherd who perfectly protects his own. And sort of a surprising angle from the text... But I think we'll see that what Jesus has done in the temple here is reclaim a place among his people where they can have the protection they really need. Jump in with me if you would. Got a lot of cool stuff to cover here in Mark 11. We're going to do this backwards again. So we're starting in verse 27 through 33. We're going to see today how Jesus used his power and his authority for our gain says this, verse 27, just this first phrase, and they came to Jerusalem. They came to Jerusalem. It's Tuesday of the last week of Jesus' life, and all week long for for Jesus and for His disciples, but for especially Jesus, things were at a fever pitch of tension for Him. We're talking like full-bore conflict the whole time. On Sunday, He rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, basically declaring Himself King. You know, that was the scene with the palm branches, the triumphal entry, where the crowds of people welcomed Him into the city, declaring Him as the rightful King of Jerusalem. That was... On Sunday, yesterday, on Monday, because what we're reading here is on Tuesday. Yesterday, on Monday, as we'll read about again in just a few minutes, Jesus walks straight into Jerusalem, straight into the temple, looks the religious authorities in the eye, and basically throws down like a boss and says, I'm here to reclaim this place. So on Sunday, he claims to be king. On Monday, he declares... That he had arrived to take back his temple. And now that we're reading here in verse 27, Mark 11, it's Tuesday. It's Tuesday. And obviously the Jewish religious leaders were less than happy about Jesus' arrival. Keep reading verse 27. And they came again to Jerusalem, and he was walking in the temple. And and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders Came to him. Now, 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 Mark has just named all three parts of what we call the Sanhedrin. S-A-N-H-E-D-R-I-N. Sanhedrin, Sanhedrin, however you want to pronounce it. That's the official, the official governing body of the Jewish Jewish authorities. And, and so, these are the most powerful religious powers that be for the Jews. They had their own police force. They could excommunicate people. They could even uh, execute anyone that they deemed worthy of death. So these are the big dogs. These are the big dogs. And the fact that all three show up as soon as Jesus comes in the temple means they're clearly very concerned about Jesus. They're freaking out a bit. And so they came to him, verse 27. They came to him in public in front of a bunch of people, and they said to him, verse 28, "By what authority are you doing these things?" There's that issue of authority there. Or stated another way, verse 28, "Who gave you this authority?" To do them. What makes you think? You can walk in here and turn everything upside down and set up shop in my house. And that's what the Jewish authorities are saying. They're like, step off, son. This is our house. And listen, when the Sanhedrin comes and they begin to question your authority, the stakes in the matter are instantly life and death. This wasn't playtime here. It was game on. Both oral and written Jewish tradition said that to appeal to a false authority in religious matters was an automatic, was an automatic false claim ground for execution. So when Jesus is asked this question by them, it's like game on, because how he answers was very important. And anyone in the crowd at the moment that this is happening, watching this scene, would have known that when the Sanhedrin says, by what authority are you doing this? Where does your authority come from? As soon as they say that, it's game on. So verse 29, Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. This is a common strategy uh, for rabbis like Jesus and these religious authorities. So this wouldn't have been weird for them to hear him answer their question with a question. That was pretty typical. And then verse 30, this is his question. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Was John the Baptist's ministry from God or not? He says, answer me. (laughs) Now, since the people believed that John the Baptist was a legitimate prophet, we know that from the text, since the people believed that John the Baptist was a legitimate prophet, a spokesperson from God, and since John the Baptist's ministry was so tied in with Jesus's, in other words, John the Baptist announced that in the coming of Jesus, the coming of the kingdom of God had arrived. Since they were so tied together, and all the people believed that John the Baptist was a prophet sent from God, they had to answer Jesus' question very carefully. Here's the crux lest they reveal what they really thought, which was that Jesus' authority and power were were invalid. They thought Him to be a fraudulent authority. And so, verse 31 says, They discussed it with one another, (laughs) saying, This is great, because Mark shows us what they're really after here. If if we say, this is the uh, religious leaders talking, If we say among themselves, From heaven, He will say, Why then did you not believe Him? But shall we say from man? And then Mark gives his own comment there. They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John was really a prophet. Which means Jesus had them either way. Either they admit that Jesus' power was was valid, or they put themselves at risk, and here's the crux, at risk with the people of losing their own authority. So Jesus had them. They came at Jesus thinking, (laughs) We've got the power and authority and control. And Jesus in a moment says, let me ask you one question. And suddenly, they're the ones who are on the defensive. So they answered Jesus, verse 33. We do not know. <laughs> okay. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Clearly, it was pretty obvious <laughs> because they knew the miracles that Jesus had been doing. So why were these religious authorities so upset with Jesus? <laughs> We've already read the passage, but let's go through it again. And we're going to take a, a, a tack on this at the end that's a little different than perhaps you may be thinking about this passage. Look at verses 15 through 19. This is great stuff. We'll start with just the first couple phrases in verse 19 to sort of help set the scene says this. And they came to Jerusalem, phrase 1, and he entered the temple, phrase 2. First phrase, they came to Jerusalem. Friendly reminder, this was Monday. What we just read had been on Tuesday. This is Monday. And they had been staying at Bethany, which is sort of a suburb of Jerusalem. And so they came to Jerusalem. But look at the second phrase, and he entered the temple. Now this was Jesus' real destination that day. And before we go any further, let's set the scene here a bit about this temple thing. It's a real big deal to, to understand sort of the context of what's going on here. The temple there was huge, like immense and grandiose and gargantuan in a way uh, that, that just dwarfs <laughs> our conception of what we know of worship spaces, okay? The place where Jesus and his disciples entered the temple here in Mark was the outside court. It was called the court of the Gentiles. And it measured 500 yards long by 325 yards wide. So five football fields long and three and a quarter football fields wide. That is 35 acres of space. A lot of people can fit there, right? Our lobby, by comparison, holds like a couple dozen. This held hundreds of thousands. Some thought perhaps even a million plus, some estimates more than that, probably hundreds of thousands is what it held. And this huge courtyard, this 35 acres of space, was held up by a portico. uh, It's sort of a formal name for a porch. And that porch went all the way around on the outside of this courtyard where you could walk underneath this this porch area. And it was supported, this portico was supported by by massive columns that went 30 feet high and that took three people connecting their hands around uh, to, to get around one of those columns. So about a third of it would look like this. I mean, huge, huge columns, 30 feet high, going all the way around this gargantuan space. Not only was the temple huge physically, of course, it was even more important, it was even bigger for them spiritually. For the Jews, the temple was at the very heart and identity of who they were as a people and as a nation. The temple was everything for them. It was where they worshipped God. It was where the animals were sacrificed from which they could have forgiveness of sins. The temple meant everything for them. There were times in Israel's history when the temple wasn't uh, up, wasn't constructed, and there are laments, and there are prayers together. They're crying out, Lord, we have no temple. What do we do? Where do we worship? This is a big deal for them. On top of all that, here in Mark, where we're reading now, it was the week before Passover, which meant that Jerusalem and the temple itself would have been filled with hundreds of thousands of Jews making their pilgrimage for that ceremony, for that week. Some estimates go over a million. It would have made like you know, squeezing into Neyland uh, Stadium in Knoxville feel like pretty comfy in comparison. There were hundreds of thousands of people in this courtyard. And during Passover, Jerusalem was total pandemonium. We know from some reports that On just the day of Passover, 255 plus thousand lambs would have been sacrificed in that temple space so that the people of God could have their Passover meal together. So, into this temple that was huge physically, even huger spiritually, and was filled with people because of Passover week, into this temple that meant everything to the Jews... And that was stuffed with people. Jesus walked and did this. Verse 15. They came to Jerusalem. He entered the temple. And began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. Now before we keep going. The temple court had been turned into an outdoor market. It used to be on the outside of the temple, but the current high priest Caiaphas brought it inside the temple. He had turned this temple courtyard area into a money-making industry, which sounds a bit like TV preachers with private jets. Are we preaching? So, this is sort of the scenario of what's going on inside that courtyard. And then it says this: he overturned the temp- he overturned the tables. Of the money changers, this is verse 15, overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, Isaiah 56, 7, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. They forgot the for all the nations part. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers into this context jesus steps up and says god gave you the blessing of resources and this building and this whole temple structure so that it could be a place where the lost and the broken where the widow and the orphan where the blind and the lame could come and find freedom and rest and become whole and get right with god but you He's pointing to them. He's, he's looking at them straight in the eye and saying, but you have turned it into a den of thieves, a place where you gain. You've abused the authority that was given to you by God for self instead of using this space for the glory of His name. Anyone watching this scene at the moment, anyone watching this scene play out in front of them would have been standing there stunned, <laughs> mouth open wide, that Jesus had just gone eye to eye with men who were abusing their authority for personal gain. And of course, they didn't take kindly. Verses 18 and 19, the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. So here's my question. Why is Jesus so zealous to guard the temple's purpose? Why is He so zealous to guard the temple's purpose? I mean, He is practically belligerent at this moment in His challenge of their authority in their abuse of their power and control. There's a moment that's one of my favorite Jesus moments at the beginning of his ministry. Uh, we learned about it in Luke 4. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but we're going to look at Luke 4, 16 to 21, just a second here. It'll help us understand why Jesus is so worked up about the abuse of the temple. Look at Luke 4 with me here. I'll put it on screen. It says, And he came to Nazareth, that was his hometown, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue, he engaged in worship. Hashtag Nine Habits. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, which is sort of like preaching. They would read the passage and make comment on it. So this is sort of Jesus' public uh, sermon, his first public sermon. It says, verse 17 through 21, And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And then he said... Verse 21, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This moment in Luke wasn't just Jesus revealing uh, that he was the Messiah, the one sent from God to save the people from their sins, though it was that. This wasn't just Jesus declaring publicly uh, that he had come to save sinners, though it was that. This was a moment that was also Jesus communicating more than just who he was and why he came. This was a moment where Jesus was communicating some of the heart of God. A God who comes to bring liberty to the captives, sight to the blind. This is a God whose heart beats fast at the thought of freeing sinners from oppression and protecting Widows and orphans. I want you to listen again to just a couple of those verses in Luke four eighteen and nineteen. I want you to listen this time for the heart of God and what Jesus is saying. It says the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to, here it is, proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to here it is again, proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind. And again, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Friends, this is a God, this is a God who loves his children so much that he will do everything in his power and authority to give to them what they couldn't otherwise earn. This is a God in whom you can place your trust, unlike all of the earthly examples you've ever known, who will at some measure fail you, this is a God in whom you can place your trust because this is a God who uses His power and His authority to serve you. In just a second here, I'm going to play a video. We're going to play a video for you of this scene from the clearing of the temple. It's told from the perspective of a, of a widow who was there when Jesus cleansed the temple. And what I want you to notice, what I want you to notice in this is that what the chief priests and the elders and the scribes, what they saw that day when Jesus cleared the temple, what they saw as a sort of violent and an unwarranted protest from Jesus was seen in a totally different light from this woman. I, I want you to... I want you to see what Jesus did in the temple that day, not as an act of a belligerent, unwarranted protester, but as the act of a shepherd who uses his power and his authority to protect you. Let's watch this together.